Amen. Well, in your hands this morning, you hold the very words that have been breathed out by God that are profitable for us for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man, that the woman, that the child of God may be complete, that you might be equipped for every good work. So please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Such a blessing once again to have Brady and Nicole back with us, with Diana as well, back together leading us in worship. As we begin the season of Advent this week, in truth, we are indeed reminded that we celebrate Christmas all year round. When do we not celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, Jesus Christ leaving this heavenly throne, coming to earth in lowliest of conditions and coming in a manner that fulfilled all prophecy? We celebrate Jesus' birth, his, we, his perfect life we celebrate that's been imputed to us as a positive righteousness. As the world talks about candy and bunnies, We celebrate Easter as well, don't we? The resurrection of Jesus Christ all year long. We are a people that are in a continual, constant celebration. How sad to only give thought to Easter once a year. I could not imagine. Well, even this week as you enjoy Thanksgiving and wonderful food and family, are we not a thankful people all year round as well? Is our thankfulness not accentuated beyond what the world could fathom? But as we overflow with thankfulness in this blessed season, indeed, as we live a life of liberty and as we have this attitude of gratitude, we must understand why. Why is our thankfulness different from the world's? You know, we saw this week all sorts of people telling us what they were thankful for, didn't we? Interviews of people saying how they were grateful for their families and for their jobs, for their health. You name it, right? But what's the difference? If those outside of Christ say they're thankful for their families and those in the body of Christ say the same, what's the difference? The difference boils down to one word. Why? Why? You're thankful for your family. Why? You're grateful for your health. Why? Why? The very worldview of a person is exposed in that simple word, Why? It's a common grace given by God to put a person in a family that loves them, isn't it? He gives the gift of of that of love to millions of lost souls. He gives good jobs to those who are outside of Christ. He allows good health to be lavished on the lost, doesn't he? All of these things you'll hear the world say that they're thankful for this season. You can watch the news reporter down at the mall catching holiday shoppers. And what are you thankful for this season? Thankful for my family, for job, for my health, you name it. You hear it all. But if this person is outside of Christ, it's something of a tragedy to hear all that they're thankful for. In the thankfulness of the lost, they've separated the gift from the gift giver. And that is tragic. I'm thankful for my job. Why? That's a gift. Why are you thankful for your job? Your answer to that exposes whether or not we love the gift or the gift giver. Heaven will not be full of those who merely love the gifts. The lost love good things, love of family, good job, food on the table, good health. They love the gifts. But what of the gift giver? Jesus is the actual gift. It is his person that is the gift. It is he that we love, not what he can do or what he's done for us. 
to be a very deceptive line between loving the gift and loving the gift giver. Would your desire for heaven change if all that was there was Jesus? He was the complete gift and package. All that awaited you. Scratch the angels. Scratch meeting the saints of old. Scratch all the gifts that come, in from, that come from heaven. Scratch meeting all your family members that have gone before you. Would you love it as much? Would you want it as much if it was just Jesus waiting? Do we cherish the gift giver over the gift? And it can be insidious and sneaky. Because if we love the gift over the gift giver, what does that gift now become? It's an idol now, isn't it? Not only is it a form of idolatry, but the thankfulness of it lacks any actual meaning if you divorce the gift from the gift giver. Something has meaning because God says it has meaning. It is him that says this is good and I've made it good and I've given it to you. So it's the very connection of the gift to the gift giver that makes it worthy of thankfulness. So that good thing, divorced of the good thing, an idol. Thankfulness, however genuine, directed away from the only one worthy to receive such praise. That's stolen glory. That's stolen glory. What does that mean that we don't feel thankfulness towards people? Of course not. But why? Why do we feel this thankfulness? You know, every Wednesday when I come in, I see Tina Jones vacuuming the floors, wiping down the windows, emptying trash cans, serving the Lord. And we're thankful for her. But what is the question? What is the one word? Why? Why are we thankful? Because God is demonstrating his faithfulness to his church through the service of his saints. Because she demonstrates a humility to serve others. Because she seeks to work in quiet where only her heavenly father sees. I don't mean to embarrass her out of the many who serve here. But do we see how our thankfulness for her labor, the gift of her service, is ultimately connected to the gift giver? Do we see that? Do we see how apart from the gift giver, the gift would have no actual real meaning? It's God that's giving it value. That makes us give it value. Remove him from the equation and we merely have the selfish enjoyment of a clean building, don't we? God is the one who gives meaning. God desires for the gifts that he gives to cause us to love the gift giver. If we miss that connection, we take something wonderful and we make it truly tragic. If we love the gift rather than the gift giver, when that gift goes away, it takes our joy with it. But if we love the gift giver, you can take it all and our joy remains. So saints, happy Thanksgiving in the truest sense of the word. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we completed a two part series titled A Tale of Two Eyes. First with the Pharisees and then with the disciples, we saw two forms of blindness. We saw blindness that was unto death, the legalism and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. That despite the blinding light and the heat of the Son of God right before them, it only served to further harden their hearts with Jesus finally leaving them once and for all, abandoning them to their sin, leaving them no hope of ever turning in repentance and faith. Their disobedience would now be the cause of their inability. They would not come 
So now they cannot come. And that was a great tragedy. It was a sobering reminder for us. Well, it's still called today that we are to walk and not run. We are to run and not walk to the foot of the cross. And it must be today. You might wait for tomorrow. You can wait for tomorrow if you can furnish proof for tomorrow's existence. But no one can give it. I have not met one person yet that can give me proof for tomorrow. We have no promise of that. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. So the Pharisees' error need not be ours. But while Jesus left the Pharisees in their sin, the disciples also suffered from blindness. But it was not a blindness unto death. It was a blindness that was slowly being removed. And this is a critical point to remember as our text today hinges partially on the progressive sight that is coming to the disciples. Indeed, that is coming to all who are being saved, all who are in the school of Christ, all who are undergoing sanctification. None of us see as clearly as we should. Indeed, we will see that demonstrated this morning in our text. Today is a special day in Mark. It's a memorable memorable day, for today is our farewell to Galilee. After today, Jesus will not return in any major capacity, in any ministry capacity, before his crucifixion. From calling his disciples on the shore, we remember that in Galilee. Calling Matthew the tax collector, the action and the teaching in the synagogues. We're leaving Capernaum. We're leaving Nazareth. We're leaving Galilee. This is not without consequence. It speaks to the state of the people that Jesus is leaving. And it tells us that we're taking a monumental step toward Calvary. A geographical change is coming that will end in Jerusalem less than a year from now. So if the preacher's done his job right, you should feel a great sadness as we leave Galilee in the rearview mirror for many reasons. But today our text is going to be putting a fitting bow on the top of Jesus' ministry here and a vital demonstration for the disciples as well. So with that, let's begin with our text. Mark 8, 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village and laying his hands on him, he was asking him, do you see anything? And he looked, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this chapter on your ministry in Galilee, we have so much to reflect upon. And Lord, this scene in our text today is one that fills us with great joy. Lord, we ask that you would attend to our words. We ask that you would abide to your word by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, we have a great feast to enjoy in our text today, so no opening story. We have a lot to say. We're just going to dive right in, beginning with verse 22. Beginning with verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. How nice when Mark begins with geography. 
And while our geography always matters, it informs our context, right, to make sure that we're reading the story with the right goggles on. And today that is exceptionally important. Today not only marks a change in geography for us, but it is a closing chapter on Jesus' ministry, which many break into three parts, right? First, of course, is Jesus' ministry to Mixed with a lot of other things, of course, but from a broad standpoint, Jesus has been in the public eye ministering to the masses. And that's part one. We end that today, where we'll see the next phase unfold, that of Jesus' private ministry to his disciples. Of course, he's always... Jesus served the thronging, thronging crowds and the masses and the disciples they watched and they learned. Or rather, sometimes they didn't watch and didn't learn. But that season ends for us today. The final act in Galilee is the closing of Jesus' ministry to the public at large. And it's now time to pour into the disciples in private ministry as we draw nearer to the passion, which marks, of course, the third phase of Jesus' ministry. So if you've not already framed it in your mind, keep those three phases in sight. Jesus' public ministry, Jesus' private ministry, and then finally, the passion. Well, today we find ourselves in Bethsaida. This would be Bethsaida Julius over on the eastern bank of the Jordan. Not only are we back in the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel and Philip, but we're also back in the area of the feeding of the 25,000 as well. We need to know that we're in Jewish territory. That matters to our text today. Now, being halfway through Mark now, this should cause a hundred different things to run through our mind. This should paint in bright colors for us how we know Jesus is going to respond in ministry here with this being Jewish territory and what it means for our next actor coming on the scene here. In our text, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and pleaded with him to touch him. Well, those of you keeping track will see something very unique here. Now, we've seen all manners of miracles and mark up to this point, right? We saw Jesus heal a man who was deaf and mute, the woman with the, the flow of blood, a man with a withered hand, a leper, a paralytic. But here's the first time in Mark. Jesus, right? This is huge. Do we remember when John the Baptist was languishing in Herod's prison? And John wonders if he misread the scene. And so he sends word asking, are you the one we're looking for? Are you the one? Or should we be waiting for someone else? How does Jesus respond in Matthew 11? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So he gives John a list. And what's at the top of that list? The blind receive sight. Do you want to know if Messiah is on the scene? The blind receive sight. And we remember Isaiah when he described the Messianic age, didn't we? What does he, what does he say? Open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. So here for this blind man, we know what it was to be blind in a Jewish area, don't we? Don't we? We know what this meant for this man. This meant a life of begging. 
It meant a life of everyone thinking that you were cursed by God. You can't worship. You can't participate in religious life, which really was all of life in a Jewish town. It was truly a tragic life to be blind. And yet we see that some brought this blind man to Jesus. Now, of course, we're back on home turf for some of the disciples, weren't we? So they would have been visiting family. And Jesus fed the 25,000 here. So Jesus was a hot ticket, and it did not take long for word to leak out. And what they plead for Jesus to do, well, it sounds pretty normal to our ears, but it really wasn't. They pleaded with him to touch him. Now, this is so very unique to Jesus and his ministry. Now, this is normal. Out of hands, etc. Not so in this day. The mere concept of laying on of hands really was not practiced. You don't hardly see it demonstrated in the Old Testament as a practice. And the religious elite, your everyday rabbis, they certainly would not touch and lay hands on. In fact, the tradition was just the opposite, wasn't it? Do not touch. Do not touch that leper. Do not touch that man who's clearly cursed by God for some unknown sin. Do not touch. Do not touch. What does our Savior do? Touch, touch, touch all the time. The untouchable to society and to the world are eminently touchable to Jesus. Now, you could take that truth and that application as far as you would like. None are too far gone. None are untouchable. What the world values is not what Jesus values. And the religious, the elitist, the system of this world would have left these people in their misery. They would not reach out bringing comfort how they can. Everything about Jesus and his ministry is opposite to the prevailing wisdom and the tradition of the day. Everything's opposite. And this scene today is no exception. Watch as this unfolds. Moving on to verse 23. We have some amazing things happening here on our final act in Galilee. Verse 23. How does Jesus respond to these men that have brought this blind man? And taking the blind man by the hand. We have to stop there. Jesus would not touch this man just once. He would touch him twice. So let's not miss the first touch that's happening right here. It's happening right here. He takes him by the hand. To do so is to miss a tremendous aspect of the tenderness of our Savior. And it's part of Jesus' purpose in our story. Taking the blind man by the hand. Did he need to do that? Did he need to do that? No. Could he have told his friends to bring him over, follow me out. Yo, disciples, grab him and bring him over where I say. Of course, of course he could have. But how many times, how many examples throughout scripture does Jesus lay his hands on the person? Almost every time. He could just speak a word and the condition would be healed. But nearly every time he brings the comfort of personal touch. Why does that matter? Behold the heart of your Savior. You must. We know that God loves us. We know that our God is love. And our heads know that. But we need to see this with the eyes of our heart. How much Jesus loves people. Compassion. And the disciples are witnessing this. They're learning this slowly. And some of us are not compassionate people by nature. Some don't even really like people for that matter. Look at your example. Look at your Savior. He takes him by the hand. Touch number one. Touch number one. And what does Jesus do? And why does he do it? 
Our text says he brought him out of the village. Again, this seems like just a factual reporting of events, doesn't it? But it's much more than that. It's much more than that. There's quite a few reasons Jesus escorts this man out of town. Some are wonderful and some are quite tragic. First and most obvious reason is that they wanted some quiet and privacy. People who are blind are usually very keen of hearing. The loss of one sense causes the other senses to be very hypervigilant. So Jesus wants it quiet. He wants him focused. This is done out of compassion. He wants this man to know and to process what's happening apart from the crowd. Just like when Jesus healed the leper, just like when the woman with the issue of blood, just like Peter's mother-in-law with a fever, none of these were people that you had to touch or that you were supposed to touch. But the truly pure. When imperfection runs headlong into perfection, it is the imperfection that must break and flee. Why else is Jesus leading him out by the hand? What are we transitioning out of? What days are we moving out of? Jesus' ministry to the public is coming to an end, isn't it? That time of intimate instruction with the disciples to the exclusion of the crowds is about to begin. So Jesus must lead this man out. Why? They're going to be swamped immediately by people seeking healing. And that's not why Jesus came. That's not his primary mission, is it? Yes, Jesus heals the sick, and he does that out of compassion, but it's more than that. Jesus heals to point to a greater healing, to point to a restored body as a foreshadowing of a restored heart. That's why he heals. A reminder that we're fallen now. Our bodies are fallen now, but there's coming a day where all will be made new. Healing is a day Healing is done out of the compassion of Jesus, right? It's a testimony about Jesus, but it's also a taste. It's a taste of what is to come. And the point of ministry now is not to do a mass healing crusade for Jesus. The time for that's over. But we dare not miss the tragedy of that statement. Indeed, the tragedy of Jesus removing this man from the village. Let us recall the spiritual condition of Bethsaida, where they are this morning. To perform a miracle like this in the presence of Bethsaida, to introduce a spiritual light and the heat of a bona fide miracle. What does light and heat do to a hard heart? It only makes it harder. The introduction of more light to a hard heart only causes it to further retreat into the darkness. Boil the egg longer. Give it more heat. Eventually it's hard, hard boiled. Well, consider what happens to our judgment the more light we have. Aren't we accountable for the light we're given? Well, we know that we are. What is the consequence? What is the consequence if Jesus were to perform another big miracle in Bethsaida, right in the middle of everyone for all to see? That's to their damnation. We know about Bethsaida. We know about this area. Jesus condemns it openly. Recall Luke 10, 13 through 14. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. 
sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. I'm not going to do another miracle in your presence. It will only be more judgment for you in that day. You don't desire me anyway. You desire the gift, not the gift giver. You don't desire the gift giver. It's almost a mercy that Jesus does not show them this miracle. That passage in Luke and elsewhere as well shows us that there are indeed degrees of punishment. Bethsaida would only be worse off if Jesus performed this miracle in their presence. So Jesus takes this blind man by the hand and he leads him out. Back to our text. What transpires next in our scene, it's fascinating. This is a miracle that's accomplished like no other miracle in the Gospels. What does Jesus do now? And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hand on him, he was asking him, do you see anything? What an amazing scene we have here. Well, a few weeks ago, we covered the issue of spit in Scripture, right? Why Jesus uses it. There's no power in the spit. There's nothing supernatural. But common understanding and common tradition of that time was to teach that the properties, right, of one person could be transferred from one to another through the spit. It was a way to impart yourself to another person. Everyone would have understood this. So Jesus is really just speaking a contemporary language to this man, right? He's telling him what he's doing. He's using the language of his day. I'm going to impart myself to you. That's what he's saying. Jesus spits on his eyes. And now Jesus, for a second time, lays his hands on him. Does Jesus need to do any of this? Does he need to lay his hands on him? Does he need the spit, etc., etc., all of this? No. But Jesus has good reason, as we will see. Not just for this blind man and for his faith, but for the disciples as well. Here's now, here's where our text really begins to get fascinating now. What does Jesus say? He was asking him, do you see anything? Well, half the people reading this for the first time, they're scratching their heads, aren't they? Do you see anything? In every miracle Jesus has ever performed up until this point, Jesus makes a declarative statement, doesn't he? He makes a bold declaration, be healed, right? Be healed. Never does he ask a question. here and the many questions that it brings to our mind is the man's response. So I want to deal with Jesus's question and the man's response together. How does the blind man respond here in verse 24? Verse 24. And he looked up and was saying, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. What on earth is going on here? Did Jesus just perform an incomplete miracle? Is Jesus' go-go power juice low this morning or something? Of course not. Of course not. Why then is Jesus asking this terribly odd question? And what do we make of the blind man's response in what seems like something of a, a partial miracle thus far? Saints, to understand this, we need to understand Jesus is transitioning into. While Jesus is willing to heal this blind man right now, Jesus is always on message and he's always on mission and he's always about the father's work. And right now that work is preparing his disciples. 
We have less than a year till they will be cowering in a room together and afraid with the master gone, having been crucified. So yes, this is a compassion on the blind man. But who is really in sight here if we need to understand this story? The disciples. The disciples. What's one of our most important rules in reading our Bibles? Context, right? Context. Here the context frames how we are supposed to read this miracle. So first look at Jesus' question. He was asking him, do you see anything? Well, what gives here, right? Does Jesus not know? Is he like a supernatural eye doctor that needs to tweak his miracle a little bit? Of course not. Of course not. Context. Who's actually in view here? You'd say, well, the blind man. That's who Jesus is talking to. Is that the mission right now? Is that the mission? He was asking him, do you see anything? The word for us to see here is blepo. It speaks of a physical sight, yes, but do you perceive anything? To understand why Jesus is doing this miracle the way he appears to be doing it, we got to look back at our immediate context. Look right back. Who was Jesus just asking? Do you not see? Do you not perceive? Look back at Mark 8.18. Look at 8.18. Having eyes, do you not, Lepo? Do you not see? Did the disciples have a physical vision problem, Blepo? No. Yet here's our word again right here in our text. Do you see anything? That's not an accident. There's nine Greek words for see. Nine. Yet here it is in our word again. Do you see anything? Jesus is talking to the blind man, but he's telling the blind man, he's telling the disciples, this blind man is you. He's you. Sight is a very common metaphor for having or for gaining understanding in Scripture, right? And Jesus is painting a living picture for them right in front of their eyes. You don't see clearly yet. Even who I am, my kingship, my mission, what I came to do, the extent of what's happening here, what your future holds right now. I have so much to show you and tell you. All the men still look like trees walking around. This blind man is a picture of you. It's a picture of your spiritual sight. And I'm giving you sight, but slowly and in stages. Jesus would later tell them, I have many things to show you, but you cannot bear them right now. Your vision comes from me. Your eyes are open, yes, but all the men still look like trees walking around. You see dimly. You're not in darkness as the pagans are but it's blurry and you're no more capable of focusing your eyes than the blind man is right here. Sight comes from me. It's a gift. Jesus is speaking to the blind man in the natural, but he's speaking to the disciples in the supernatural. So what's coming for the disciples? What awaits them? Well, what happens to the blind man? Verse 25. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. What a picture we have before us. 
And not to steal any thunder from one of the most amazing parts of Scripture that's coming upon us just next week. But take a sneak peek in your Bibles. Look down to verse 29. Look down to 8 verse 29. What's coming? Look, look at verse 29. What profession do we see? You are the Christ. Do we see that? You are the Christ. This very spiritual progress of the disciples is made manifest in this blind man's miracle. You think you see Jesus clearly right now. And indeed, your eyes are open and you can see that there's a massive California redwood that's standing right in front of you in your presence. But I'm going to lay my hands on you and I'm going to pour myself into you intensely. And in only a few weeks, you're going to see clearly for the first time. I'm going to give you sight. And when you do, you're going to proclaim you are the Christ. That's the pinnacle. That's the crescendo. Be here next week for that. If we don't understand what Jesus is doing with his disciples, if we lack that context, this miracle will kind of leave you with more questions than answers. And just as a side note, saints, prosperity preachers and charlatan healers will often use this verse as a proof text to justify partial healings when they're supposedly only halfway healed at their crusade. That's a deception. That's not the meaning of this text at all. If I have saved you, if I have given home to clarity all the way home, even if you feel like everything looks fuzzy right now and you don't completely understand it all, I am the one who gives sight. But as we'll see once again, Jesus not only gives sight, but he also takes it away. It has always been so. Isaiah affirms this in the 44th chapter, verse 18. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see. And he has shut their hearts so they cannot understand. Jesus opens eyes and closes eyes. He gives sight and he leaves blindness. So if you see this morning, even if it be dimly, even if everyone around you, even if life around you looks like fuzzy trees walking around. Jesus looked intently at the blind man and he was restored and he began to see everything clearly, never perfectly, not on this side of eternity. Paul says in first Corinthians 13 that we see dimly in light of eternity, but you may know clearly who Jesus is, you will be able to love and to walk with him in complete clarity, knowing who he is, what his word commands, how you are to love and how you are to walk. All these things Jesus will bring to you in full measure. You will see in clarity. So be of good cheer. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Your spiritual sight is as much a gift from God as your physical sight is. It's a work of God. And this man's sight came from repeated touches from Jesus, didn't it? Contact with Jesus. How? He's in your word. He's in here in the fellowship with the saints, those who love him and can encourage us in him, that you may walk with him, that you may talk with him. You have access to the father through him. This is where he's found. Jesus will touch you and you will begin to see more clearly. And yes, it's supernatural. Don't run, Baptists. 
Yes, of course, it is supernatural. Our salvation is the greatest miracle in history. It's greater than the creation of the very cosmos. It would be far easier to create the world than to make a dead, rebellious sinner come to life. And now a loving Savior who comes and he teaches us and he changes us and he causes us to see clearly in his word and through his people. That's a supernatural act. It's a continuous miracle. When you grow in Christ, it's a supernatural miracle. So see that growth for what it is, a miracle, and rejoice in it and let it propel you on and forward. If I be his disciples, Jesus is looking intently at me. Jesus is looking intently at me and I'm going to see clearly. Yet we almost suffer a little bit of whiplash here as we press on in our text. Our ending of verse 25 was really a shining light of promise, wasn't it? We ha- we're left with a man with clear sight, a promise of a future sight in the work that Jesus is doing in his disciples. I really wanted to end on that high note. That's such encouragement. But nevertheless, verse 26 looks right at us. Finally, verse 26. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. What a punch in the gut. If you've been walking with us in our series until now, you know exactly what this means. These are words of tragedy equal to Jesus getting in the boat back in verse 13 and leaving the Pharisees in their blindness and in their sin, taking the light of life with him because they would not see. Now they cannot see they would be left in their sin. Jesus commanding this man to stay away from the village, which was much more than just not being mobbed by the people. This was a abandonment of Bethsaida. You will not go back there and testify of what the Lord has done for you. Their hearts are hard. More light will only turn them to stone. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Because of your disobedience to the light that has been given to you. Every one of them back in that village, they sat and they ate literal manna from heaven at the feeding of the 25,000. You heard the teaching. You witnessed the miracles. And now this former blind man, this testimony of who I am and my power is going to pass you by. You're never going to even know about it. Do not even enter the village. Don't even enter the village. And indeed, they will never know of it. As we bid farewell to Galilee, this final act performed in an area that had rejected him. Now, Jesus will quietly walk back through this area in chapter 9, but his ministry here is done. The job has been done so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, And the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light. Among them, the dawn sunrise crested the mountain and it rose into a blinding light. And what did we find out? Of darkness rather than the light. 
because their deeds are evil. This is the final act and demonstration of power in Galilee. And in tragic irony, the peoples of this area, the one upon whom the light dawned and was prophesied for the light to have dawned for the beginning of history, will never hear or see of the final act. But we must see, we must hear and we must feel this subtle seismic shift that's happened in our text today. The dividing line that is split as Jesus leaves Galilee. But saints, this is merely a tremor for the earthquake that is coming. He must leave Galilee because he's marching toward Calvary. But we must first journey north to the pagan city of Caesarea Philippi next week where we will hear the proclamation of the ages. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we look at the joy and the tragedy of your final act in Galilee, Lord, we are humbled, and yet we are filled with joy. We are filled with joy. Lord, every one of us in here today, we see dimly. Lord, in so many areas of our spiritual walk, in so many areas of our life, people look like trees walking around us, and we don't see clearly. But Lord, you have promised to bring us sight as we can handle it, as we are able, as we press into you. You have promised to put your hands on us that we might see clearly. That is the cry of our heart this week, that we might see you clearly. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.